we're going to open back up to the book of Matthew. As I know, it's probably shocking that that's where we're going, but that's where we're going. Matthew chapter 19, as we know, last week we concluded Matthew chapter 18 after a marathon run in it. And I hope that it was beneficial and that we all enjoyed it. If you didn't, you can leave your comments, concerns, or questions at the back door. Today we're going to look at chapter 19. You can't say that we're not making progress. We're already 19 chapters ahead of where we were when we started two years ago. So, progress is palpable. Okay. Chapter 19 of Matthew as we concluded from chapter 18, we talked about how Jesus gave an intensive middle uh, of the way lesson on offense and his view of his disciples and how his disciples should treat each other, how his disciples should treat other people, um, causing offense when you might not have intended to or causing offense when you completely intended to. Causing offense to cause another to fall, causing offense to cause yourself to fall. All of these things he addressed in that chapter, he gave us some very uh, heady warnings about the consequences of such actions, and it was all to correct, encourage, and instruct his disciples as to how the next step should should go. Um, and I think it is, again, as we talked about it being kind of a middle of the book kind of teaching, you feel like you're in the middle of your ministry, you've got to get everybody back onto the, this is what you're supposed to be kind of a deal, Okay. Um, we have been seeing this as we've been going through the book of Numbers, as we have been trying to teach through the book of Numbers. We read all through Leviticus, and you get all of this instruction in Leviticus, and you realize all that was done basically, you know, right there at Mount Sinai, and it took them a year, and then they start heading off, and then he's like instructing them again, and then you get a little a few more yards down the road, and they're like, oh, well, we need to go back over this purification thing. And so, you know, you can see Jesus kind of middle of his ministry here. He's stopping. I think it's also uh, kind of impactful because in this chapter 19, you see that he's leaving Galilee. So he's moving down. He's moving southward. He's getting closer to that terminal destination. Um, he's getting closer to Jerusalem. This was the, his finishing salvos in Galilee. And so, you know, he's getting ready to move south. And so I think at that point, too, he was like, okay, before we go down in the direction that we're heading, let's make sure we understand some things. Let's make sure we're founded in some things. Let's make sure we've got a grasp on exactly what it is I mean when I say love your neighbor. Exactly what I mean when I say don't cause offense. Exactly what I mean. So I feel like that's why chapter 18 was such a, a dense chapter. As an overview for chapter 19, which we kind of spoke about this in overview um, from uh, at the nursing home last week. But you're going to have a couple of stories in chapter 19 that speak in particular to, I think, you're kind of addressing the big elephants in the room that are always present as we have been going through Jesus' teachings, okay? One of them being legalism and self-righteousness because of that, and the other being kind of works and, I don't have a good way of kind of summarizing that up, but works, self-righteousness, self-attainment, um, kind of the, what we would call like almost like the check checkbox Christianity kind of things that we've used before. You're getting kind of these two different sides of this. You're getting two different pictures. One is with the story that we read very first that we're going to talk about today about the Pharisees coming and questioning Jesus about divorce. Then you're going to have the story later on about the rich young ruler. Um, that, like I said, some... Some books like Matthew call him rich and young. Other books just call him rich. You know, I have found that as I've worked that young is relative. That's why we don't use age descriptors. I don't ever use age descriptors. I will tell people that they either have a lot of miles on their tires or they don't. Okay. And you can have a lot of miles on your tires in a short amount of years. So that's not even calling you old. Okay. You could be 50 with 50,000 miles or you could be 90 with only 10. You know, you think about the car that never gets driven. Sits there, you know, you got a 19, 
86 Cadillac that only has 10,000 miles. Well, it's 2019. How did you... Well, never got driven, okay? So we don't use age descriptors, okay? We don't, we don't classify. We don't want to label anybody as old or young or, you know, they always say that I'm too young to have the job that I have, that I'm too young to be anything, you know, because I don't look like I'm old enough. And then I tell them I have four kids and then they go, okay, well, I guess you are old enough. And so... It's like I don't even have to tell them that I'm 34 at that point or going to be 34. I just tell them I have four kids. And I go, well, bless your heart at whatever age you are, you know, 20, 25, 35, 55. I don't know what you are, but bless your heart, you got four kids. Um, So here we have this rich young ruler picture. That was a lot of that to say. We're talking about the rich young ruler. That's how you can really get off on an ADHD rant there. Um, You have the rich young ruler who you know the story of came to Jesus and wanted to know what he had to do that he could inherit eternal life. And what's the thing I can do? I've been doing stuff all my life. What's this last thing that I need to do so I can get what I want? And, you know, Jesus hit him with the, you know, sell all your goods and give them to the poor and then you will come and follow me and have riches in heaven. And that's when the road took an abrupt So we see those two stories and we see the kind of works-based, you know, idea of I can achieve, I can do, I can get, and also the trappings of then all of the things that he actually has achieved and gotten and obtained in his life and how those actually became a weight to him instead of a freedom. And then on the other side, you have the Pharisees and their continual rant of legalism and warping and twisting of God's word. In between there, sandwiched between them, is this beautiful, obscure story of the children coming to Jesus. You know, a lot of times it's used for children's ministries or whatever it may be. You know, don't let, you know, suffer the children to come unto me. Don't refuse the children. You know, you get this kind of very colloquial phrase thing with that. But actually, I think that is the most important section of chapter 19 to define everything else. Otherwise, you just have these two random stories about the Pharisees and the rich young ruler, and you isolate them, and you try to take isolated teachings out of them. And as, as you know, Brother Charles was talking about this morning, that is not the case. And I'm going to tell you about how that's not the case, that this whole chapter is flowing from one chapter to another, and the whole chapter in and of itself are not three isolated cases. They're actually one big picture teaching lesson that Jesus is doing. It's just you have to be looking for the lesson Um, where Jesus is giving it. So here, starting off in chapter 19, we'll start in verse 1, read down to verse 9. And it came to pass that when Jesus had finished these sayings in Galilee, he departed from Galilee and came into the coasts of Judea beyond Jordan, which might sound a little weird to you, um, because obviously Jordan is on the east side and there's no, uh, you're not talking about like the um, Mediterranean Sea or anything like that. You're actually talking about the coasts of the Jordan River. And they're actually looking, when you look at a map, a biblical map of this area, technically the area, if you're lining up with the phraseology they're using, the areas east of Judea beyond the Jordan, which would be east of Judea, would actually be non-Judean lands. It's actually the land of Perea um, is where you're actually landing at. Okay, If you go east of the Jordan, you are out of Judea. Okay. Um, hence why Jordan was the boundaries of, of the land. So you've actually moved out of Judea, but they're coming down this Eastern side and they're on the Eastern coast of the Jordan river. Just looking over this stream into Judea. I've always found that very fascinating. And I think you should capture the fascination with it too, because this is the way Israel came into Israel. Okay. When they came from the wilderness. All right. When they come up, they come up the eastern side of the Jordan and they cross over and they go into Jericho and then they go into Bethel and they go or Bethany and then they go on into Jerusalem. I mean, that's kind of the it's this east to west migration. But they started on this eastern border of, of, you know, the Jordan River. I don't think that's coincidental that that's how Jesus comes into Jerusalem. Okay. So it's, and I've always found that, and that's even his triumphal entry, he comes from east, he comes from Bethany into Jerusalem. When he goes back out to the Mount of Olives and goes back out to Bethany a few days before his crucifixion, he goes back out east to Bethany and then he goes back in from the east into Jerusalem. There's just a lot of, there's a lot of symbolism with that, okay? So that's where they're camped out at. We really got to go if I'm only getting like two verses in now. Um, The Pharisees also came unto him. So here he's there. 
A great multitude followed him, of course. That's what happens. He healed them there. Again, that's, of course, what happens. He preaches, he heals, preaches the kingdom, shows the kingdom wherever he goes. And the Pharisees also came to him, of course, as per exemple, tempting him and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Now, the reason that this is a geographical question, there's a tie-in in geography, is this area of Perea would have been under the reign or under the jurisdiction of Herod Antipas, okay? who we talked about, if you remember, I know, because you were taking um, very good notes you know, about five or six chapters ago. You know, we talked about Herod Antipas um, and how he was the Herod, okay, that was, you know, trying to have his brother's wife and you know, got chastised by John and John cut his, had his head cut off and all that stuff. Herod was entering into an illegal marital relationship, okay? So now you have this question in Herod's native lands or Herod's jurisdiction of Perea. Another question about divorce. Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? Which Herod had already established that he felt it was completely right for him to put away his wife for any cause. All right. And obviously you would have to assume that most of the religious leaders of that time did not really complain too much about it to Herod. So here these Pharisees, these leaders in this area have come up to Jesus and asked him the question. And they're not asking it because they're like, hey, you know, we had this problem with Herod and we know John got his head cut off over it. Is it really that big of a deal? No, they're doing it to tempt him. Tempting him from a religious point of view, but I think also they're tempting him from a civil point of view. Let's see if we can't get Jesus' head cut off. Let's let him start talking about divorce a little bit more. Let's let that get riled up again. And then you've killed John and you've killed Jesus. Bada bing, bada boom, mission pride, we're, we're done. Now we're free to go about doing everything we want to do again. But Jesus answered them and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female. And he said, For this cause shall a man leave his father and his mother and shall cleave to his wife, and these two shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more two, but one flesh. What God, therefore, as we would say it, what God, therefore, hath joined together, let no man put asunder. Okay? Now, we've heard those phrases, that, that section of Scripture, plenty of times, right? And, in fact, Jesus has already taught on this, and we talked about it way back in Matthew chapter 5. I think, actually, from Matthew chapter 5 till now, and in this context, and everything that I've researched up to this point, and in this point, and researching this, I've even gotten more light on it. So, you just talk about how, in two years, you can kind of come to different conclusions, or you can at least have different revelations, different understandings of things... I think it's it's the case. And so even when you've gone two years now, you've studied through an additional 15 or 10 um, books of the Bible. I mean, you've just continued on through these chapters and then you come to the same topic again, which we've, again, talked about how you just seem to can't get enough teaching done. Like people just can't seem to grab what Jesus is teaching and he's the best teacher of them all. Okay. And they're still coming back a few years later going, yeah, Jesus, you know, when you said that thing about adultery and divorce... So what do you, I mean, really, what do you think about it, Jesus? And here he goes again. And he tells them, he says, look, this is how God made it from the beginning. He's speaking of a particular spiritual situation that happens with a man and a woman. Okay? Basically, is what he's talking about. And it's not the marriage ceremony. All right? So he's giving this reiteration. This is how God made it from the beginning. He's not giving any kind of moral compass on divorce, so to speak. And he's not giving any kind of, okay, these are the new rules about divorce, so to speak. He is addressing to them, this is how God made it from the beginning, that when a man and a woman come together, they are one. You can't, how are you going to cut them? Where are you going to split them at? They're one. It's actually a physiological as well as a spiritual union that you can't break them apart. So that's the answer he gives them. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in just a second. They say unto him, why did Moses then command to give a writing of divorcement and to put her away? And Jesus said to them, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, suffered you or allowed you to put away your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whosoever shall put away his wife, except it be for fornication and shall marry another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her, which is put away, doth commit adultery. Notice that, again, and what I really, 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 really want us to grab from this, this has nothing to do 
with the legal acceptable ramifications of divorce. Okay? It's nothing to do with this. This entire story is going to have nothing to do with somebody sitting down going, well, do I have a legitimate divorce or do I not have a legitimate divorce in 2019? This has nothing to do with that. Okay? It's actually talking about a much deeper problem. So we set the scene that he has, Jesus has left Galilee, okay? He's headed down south. He's making his way towards Jerusalem. We talked a little bit about this last week, but it is interesting, you know, he started his ministry on the fringes, okay? He started his ministry in Galilee. That wasn't like the cultural, religious hub of Israel at that time. It's actually, it's a fringe place. It's a place that actually up north had been conquered and reconquered and trampled through a billion times. I mean, every time some invading army came through the north, well, they ran right through Galilee and they sacked the place over and over and over again. So the place had been just decimated. All right. So it was not like this thriving metropolis of, you know, Jewish culture. It actually was almost a fringe area. We know the Decapolis area was around there. That was mostly Gentile. And we know on the western, kind of northwestern areas, you had Samaria, which, remember, they were not Jews' friends, and they didn't like them, okay? Now, they were Jewish, or most of them were. They were a little bit of mixed up towards the end. But the Samaritans were ethnic Jews to begin with, okay? It's just they had been outcasts because those were the twelve. Those were the ten tribes that went up north and decided to start raising up pagan idols, and, you know, that's, that's how they went, all right? But you get this kind of, that's their side. This is, not, this is not the orthodox Jews that we're talking about. These are kind of the fringe people. And who did Jesus spend most of his ministry with? The fringe people. Man, he's hanging out with prostitutes and tax collectors, and he's healing all these folks who are sick. He's not going to the wealthy and the righteous. He's going to the poor and the sinners. So Jesus is already scandalous in who he deals with. Hanging out with these fringe people. Now he's going down south, though. He's getting much closer to that kind of the central area. Okay, He's getting much closer to the orthodoxy. He's getting much closer to the entrenchment, the traditions. I mean, all that stuff. Okay. So going forward from there, he's gone to this land. And we talked about the correlation with Herod Antipas. It's interesting, though, and not too surprising, that the Pharisees come to him the first thing, and they want to challenge him from the very beginning, and they want to tempt him from the very beginning. They're starting off at the very beginning trying to get Jesus discredited. He's coming to a new area he hadn't been yet. Let's go ahead and get it out there. This man's not a friend of Moses. He's not a friend of the law. He's trying to change everything. He's a rabble-rouser. He's causing all these problems. Look at how he's messed up Galilee already. Don't let him come in here and mess us up too. We know what we stand for. We have, okay. So it's one of those things. And this discussion that he was challenged to is centering around the interpretation of Moses' precept that was given in Deuteronomy. And this, this, this again... As he started off in Matthew chapter 5, he is doing the same thing down here in Perea. You have heard it said that Moses allowed you to put away your wives for every cause. I'm telling you that from the beginning, it was not so. And even Moses' allowance was not for you to be able to put away your wife for every cause. You have heard it said that, but I'm telling you, this is how God views it, okay? And again, we are not speaking about, even Jesus here in the context, is not speaking about the legal precepts for quote-unquote acceptable divorce. He is speaking about the twisting and the corruption of God's word. That's what he's talking about. So people take this out of context, they take this whole section out of context, and then they set it over here, kind of like we were talking about with forgiveness. Oh, well, what Jesus is teaching there is that you have a three-step process to forgive someone, and then you're good. You can legally say you feel good about yourself. I've done what the checkboxes have said. I did it individually, check. I did it with a couple people, check. I did it with the church, check. Now kick them out, get them gone, and let's move on. And I can legally feel self-justified that I did it the right way. Jesus' whole point of that was not once you check these three boxes, it's acceptable and you're legally indemnified from any problems. It's you need to be going back again and again and again and again and again and again. Do not be quick to allow one of my little ones to be so easily cast away. That was what he said. 
That's why he then says, no, Peter, it's like 70 times seven. It's not just seven times. There's no quick and easy, okay, check off seven times of forgiveness and then you're done. No, you go back at them. The point is restoration. The point is forgiveness. The point is grace. The point is compassion. The point is mercy. So here he goes back again. You've heard it said this. Moses just gave you that precept for a specific reason. Okay. And we're going to talk about that, but he gave it to you for a reason that is not necessarily your your free license to go do whatever you want but that's how you've taken it you've taken that and said oh well moses said we could do a writ of divorcement and therefore you know if anything comes up that we don't like and we want to do it man we can kick our wives out of our house disinherit them and throw them on the street and we can get another one but from the beginning it's not been that way and then he goes into kind of giving the spiritual side of it, that there's a union there that cannot be separated. You, no bill of divorce that Moses gave you, still, it, it doesn't separate that union. It's still there. Spiritually, you have joined with something you cannot separate. Okay? Paul kind of mentions this when you get into 1 Corinthians, when he talks about being joined to a harlot. He says there is a union that goes on there there's no marriage ceremony that goes on there but there's a union that goes on there in those actions that join the two spirits that are inseparable so he's giving a deep deep connective tissue kind of thing going on that he's saying you can't separate that like so i don't care what moses gave you moses gave you what he gave you for a purpose that god allowed him to it was for a purpose but it didn't do any. It's not like it actually separated it, nor did Moses give you the authority to just use it however you wanted to. And like I said, in fact, we're going to find out that Moses actually gave it for the opposite reason. Here, though, he gives the phrase that everybody, again, likes to take out of context this whole chapter, this whole section and go, OK, here we go. Jesus finally gave us the answer in 2019, how we can line up and say this is a biblical divorce and this is a non-biblical divorce. OK, that's what this chapter gets used a lot for. As well as the chapter 5. Same thing, you know, with the rich young ruler story. That gets kind of pulled out. Now we got this isolated teaching over here. And remember, what we're talking about is, is we're talking about legalism. We're talking about self-righteousness. And we're talking about the twisting of the word of God for our own purposes. So this chapter was not given to be the grounds that you come up with for a biblical or non-biblical divorce. This is actually teaching be careful how you twist the word of God to justify your own position. But he uses there because everybody likes to grab that, except if she commit adultery, then you're free to do that. The word there that's adultery, you know, it's kind of the fornication word. It's the Greek word for pornea, which obviously sounds very familiar. But it's the Greek word for pornea, which technically means a harlotry, a habitual immorality, adultery, sexual misconduct. It kind of covers a wide range of things. That word is used in a lot of different ways. Fornication, here adultery. Again, when Jesus says that, he's not... There's, there, there's, there's nuance with that, okay? We're not teaching on that this morning, but there is nuance with that, okay? The word itself even can mean a... And, and probably what is in more contextually what they're talking about is when you were going to marry a woman... And these days, you gave a dowry. You give a dowry for a woman, it's a down payment on that woman that you're buying. Unfortunately, you're buying her as your wife um, in that way, but you're giving a dowry. You're saying, oh, this is what I'm doing for you. You know, this is, you know, I know you're giving me your daughter and I get something in return and that kind of a deal. Well, if it just so happened that you come up towards the wedding day and it's like, or let's say you just come up a few weeks into the wedding, okay, and all of a sudden she's pregnant, but she's pregnant like, Six months pregnant, you know, kind of a deal. Then obviously you would have the idea that this did not come from you since you've only been married for a couple of weeks. And you would assume that this woman was unchaste when you bought her, so to speak. So then there was ramifications in the Levitical law for a woman who was found to be with child prior to being married. But then you married her and you gave all your best cows and everything for her for a chaste woman. And then turned out she's not really chaste. So now what's the man going to do? What's the ramifications? What's the legal prescription the man has in that way? And that's why we talked about when Joseph found Mary to be with child. That's why we were talking about that, I think, on a Wednesday night, how that there was a there were some ramifications to that for Joseph and Mary. All right. Mary would have technically been hauled off and stoned because she was an adulterer. She was having an un 
marital affair, okay, before she got married to Joseph. So you have these kind of ramifications that are in there. So that's part of why this kind of except in the case of adultery thing is used in there, all right? It still does not change anything about the union between the two, okay? Even in this legitimized sense that you're that gets pulled out of this, it's still there's still a union there, no matter what's happened. If there's a union between a man and a harlot, and they're not married, there's still a union between a man and a woman who are married, no matter what the pre-existing circumstances were. But, like we were saying, that's not what he is addressing in this chapter, though. What he is addressing are the Pharisees twisting the words of Moses to legitimize their selfish, ungodly disobedient, lustful, adulterous behavior, okay? They had gone and done everything they wanted to do and then pulled Moses' script up and said, Hey, Moses said we could divorce you. What's the big deal? Why then did Moses command that we could be giving them a a writ of divorcement if we can't put her away? Why would Moses say we could put her away if you say we can't put her away? Are you at odds with Moses? This is this battle royale that they love to get into let's throw jesus up against moses because we are moses's descendants you know they'd use that argument i don't know who this jesus is or who he gets his information from we know moses and we follow moses and moses told us to do this so that's what we're going to do they kind of forget about the fact that god told moses everything to do but you know they're following moses and what moses says that's what we're going to do and yeah, you know, we kind of take things that Moses said and through the generations, we've kind of, you know, adapted them and moved them around and changed them a little bit, embellished in some places, you know. Yeah, Moses said something about loving your neighbors. And we said, yeah, I guess you could hate your enemies in there too. Throw that in there. Moses said, just don't commit adultery. Think all you want to. Lust all you want to. Adulterize in your heart all you want to. But as long as you don't actually get down to doing that thing, then you're covered. Or if you do and you want an easy way out, give her a writ of a divorcement. Now you're not married anymore. It's all easy. See how we have moved away from as it was in the beginning. So he asks, they ask him, well, didn't Moses say that? And I love Jesus's answers to them. Because of the hardness of your hearts, he allowed it. That wasn't like a... Badge of honor? Now, they sure wore it like it was. But it wasn't a badge of honor, and that wasn't a compliment. Oh, you're talking about the hardness of our heart. Yep, I got the hardest heart in this side of the Mississippi. I'm the hardest heart. That was not a compliment. That was Jesus' way of saying, (laughs) you're kind of dead in there. And it was because of your fellow previous ancestors' deadness as well that he allowed this to go on. Remember, as we've been talking on Wednesday nights, there is a civic side okay a secular side to everything well most everything that went on with leviticus numbers and deuteronomy as we talked about there's an organizing of the camp that yeah you can draw some spiritual allusions to it but there was just that's just a civic thing that's organization organization of elders in a certain way yeah there's there you can draw again some spiritual sides to it but there's also like you gotta have them you gotta have an organization you have to have a bureaucracy in this way to organize a camp and a nation that was made up of people who most certainly were born again but also of a lot of people who most certainly were not born again they would have just been secular people okay but they were of the genealogy of Abraham, and they were entered into with a promise that God said, of all of your lineage, I'm going to bless the world. So you get you get the kind of this side of there are some civic things that were applied. The writ of divorcement was a civic thing that was developed there. Okay, and as we were talking about that, you know, I made the mention that it was developed for a reason. The reason is not what we think. The way the Jews here were interpreting it, or at least they were saying they were interpreting it, was here's your way out. Here's your way out. You're displeased with your woman? Well, here's how you can get a new one. Here's your writ of divorcement. It's all you got to do. All you got to do is have a writ of divorcement and you can get out of this union that you're unhappy with or that she doesn't do enough for you or she burned the toast or whatever it was. Here is your bill of divorcement. This is how you nullify the relationship. This is how you end that mystical, mysterious union that God put in place all the way back at the Garden of Eden. All you needed was this one sheet of paper that Moses gave you. That was it. 
And all of a sudden, it did some kind of magical incantation and broke this mysterious union that no man can put asunder. No, it was not for that reason. He actually gave the bill of divorcement to dissuade the practice of divorcement. Say, well, how does that work? Well, before then, you didn't need anything. (laughs) A man viewed a woman as property. And up until this point, a lot of them are still viewed as property. So a man viewed a woman as property. This isn't an Adam and Eve relationship of some glorious, harmonious, beautiful marriage. This is, you're just another woman. You were the most adequate woman I found. And your dowry wasn't that high. And so there you go. I got you. Okay. But now I'm not really pleased with you. And I found another one. So you know what? I'm just going to drop you off here. Good luck. Goodbye. See you later. Now that was going on in Israel this organized civic institution that bore the name of God. Okay. So there's where the, this does not work for me kind of thing comes in play. So God through Moses said, no, if you're going to terminate this, and again, your hard heartedness is driving us to do this, but if you're going to try to terminate this, it has to be legal. You have to have paperwork you got to take it to the judge, whatever you want to say. You know, you've got to go. You can't just secretly drop her off at the quick sack and run away and go on. You can't do that anymore. Now you actually have to go down to the town center and go, I'm divorcing so-and-so. Which meant, now everybody knows your business. Now everybody can look at you and go, well, what a worthless you are, you know. Now you're out there in public. no more private thing. You can't just secretly throw wives off on the curb and go have your illicit relationships with anybody you want to. Don't work that way anymore. Moses gave them this writ of divorcement to actually dissuade the practice. They have taken it as a legitimization of the practice. They've taken it as a, yeah, man, now i got a legal way to get it done. You know, it's kind of like the billboard that you see down here in, uh, in downtown Jasper for one lawyer that says, 200 bucks, uncontested divorce. I think the only thing would make it better if there was a drive-thru on the building. Because that's about what he's—that's about what he is offering there. Don't worry about it. Two hundred bucks. We'll get this thing knocked out. Wham, bam. Thank you, ma'am. Move on. Get you another one. It's a prescription for expanding the practice where Moses did not intend it to be that way. What it reminds me of is the two occurrences that we have just recently talked about on Wednesday night from Numbers. The twisting of God's word, the twisting of God's intentions, the twisting of God's purpose into your own, or in some ways, twisting it to make it delegitimate, or illegitimate, I guess should be the name. If you remember when we looked at Numbers chapter 20 and Numbers chapter 16, we had two occurrences that we talked about were just like, I mean, it made me want to fall down in sackcloth and ashes, but... You look at Numbers chapter 16 where our favorite guys, Datham and Abiram, you know, wouldn't go up to Moses. Their complaint to Moses was, you brought us up out of a land that flowed with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness and to make yourself a prince over us. You brought us up out of a land that flows with milk and honey Or you have not brought us into a land that flows with milk and honey or given us inheritance of fields and vineyards. We will not come up. And then in chapter 20, we found where the people of Israel now are chiding Moses about the water at Meribah. And they complain, oh, would to God that we had died when our brethren died before the Lord. And why have you brought up the congregation of the Lord into the wilderness that our that we and our cattle should die here? And wherefore have you made us to come up out of Egypt to bring us into this evil place? It is a place of no seed or figs or vines or pomegranates. Neither is there any water to drink. You see the phrases like a land that flows with milk and honey, the promise of an inheritance, all these things that they had been living on for so many generations while they were in slavery and cried out to God to. And now in their complete and utter rebellious, disobedient, wicked hearts are viewing everything of the good grace that God has done for them in the last two years. Okay. And they've twisted it. You brought us out here to die. You brought us to this wilderness. You brought us to this place. 
And the reality is God didn't bring them into any of this. They're in that wilderness because they disobeyed. God said, you're going to die here because you disobeyed me. God said, I'm taking you up out of a land of slavery to bring you to a land of milk and honey. But you said you didn't want to go. So back in the wilderness, you go. Their wicked minds at work, they have taken the promises of God. They have discredited them. They have changed them. They've made God out to be the enemy now. They go so far as to say that this land that flows with milk and honey doesn't exist. I want to go back to Egypt where milk and honey actually flowed. And changing it that God was not leading them to some distant land that, or to that land that flowed with milk and honey. But rather he led them from a land that flowed with milk and honey. Basically attributing God with wickedness. You've taken me out of this land. You've given me false promises. You've told me that I was going to be blessed. And here I go. Look at where I'm at. I'm in this stinking wilderness and I'm going to die here with my cattle. What kind of a God does that? So here, this teaching about divorce, you have a similar occurrence. But it's important for us to note that Jesus exposes the root understanding of this mosaic principle and the legalistic twisting of it. He has laid both of them out there. He's shown what's doing it here. Is it not lawful for a man to put away his wife for any cause? And the answer is no. When has that ever been lawful? When do you read it? Go back through Leviticus. Fine. Go pull up Deuteronomy. Show me where Moses said. If you got any cause, you can divorce your wife. It's not there. That was not Moses' intention. That was not God's intention. There was nothing in Deuteronomy that taught that. You sure have twisted it that way, but that's not what it was originally for. But because of the hardness of your heart, it was permitted. And you can kind of see with everything we we're talking about with Numbers chapter 20 and all those examples, you say the same thing, kind of the allowance, the permission of God for these people to do these things that ultimately got them exactly where they were. Okay, God allowed them to go over there and come back and lie their faces off the whole time about... What's going on in, in Israel? Oh, no, it's a land that's with giants and we're never going to get there. And then when they get actually punished for that and they start looking up, who do they blame? They don't blame themselves. Oh, man, we should have listened. We should have trusted God. We should have listened to him. We should have relied on him. We should have said, well, well, God, what did you do? You said you were going to bring us to a land. And look, you took us from a land that flowed with milk and honey. Now we're going to die out here in the wilderness. Now you got us to another place. You don't have any water anymore. What are you doing, God? You don't know what you're doing. What's crazy in all that to me, though, is that even in their disobedience, even in their murmuring, even in all of those things, God still would, by permission and allowance, give them a little grace. They complain at Meribah, a place they've been to now twice, and a place that on this is the third occasion they've complained about water. Even though Moses and Aaron did what they did, God still made water come from a rock. God still fed them with water. Even, I mean, everybody's now just, everybody now is guilty. Everybody now has complained. Even Moses and Aaron have gotten on the complaining wagon and murmured and thinking this was a bad idea and all this stuff. And even in all that, he still made that water come from a rock to give them water. Still gracious. Still merciful in that. But the hardness of the Pharisee's heart in this example, the hardness of the Jew's heart in those examples all leads to this disobedient view of what God's word actually said. And if we think about it, that's the oldest trick in the book. You go all the way back to Genesis and you have by a hard, wicked, disobedient heart. God said this. I say this. God said, don't eat. I say, do eat. God said, you won't. You'll die. I tell you, you're not going to die. It's just this hard heart of disobedience that has been ever present with us since the fall. So here their hardness, the Pharisees show the hardness of their own heart. In this example, hardness that instead of nothing, this is the this is the crazy thing about it. Instead of viewing the joy and the beauty of the intentions of the creator 
as in regards to the marriage of a man and a woman, the relationship there, the beautiful, mysterious union that goes on. Instead of marveling in the beauty of that, taking joy in the beauty of that, rather, they want to challenge that established order of God with self-righteousness and legalism. They want to turn around and say, yeah, but when I want to divorce my wife because I want another one, where's my legal route so I can still call myself holy and righteous? I mean, isn't that... God's going, I've gave, given you this beautiful, mysterious, glorious thing called the union of man and woman. It's so crazy. It's crazy how it works. It's miraculous. It's beautiful. It's, it's awesome, you know, and all these things. And they're going... Yeah, but how can we how can we break that up? And, and, and we, but, we, but we do need to keep it legal. We do need to keep it righteous. We do need to keep it holy. So how can we do it in the right way so that we can still feel justified in and of ourselves? Man, now that is us a lot of times. Here it's talking about marriage. We just talked about it with forgiveness. It's a story that's repeated over and over again, whatever the context is. How can I do this, keep it legal, and feel justified? Not how can I perform this glorious, mysterious thing that God has given me to do that gives Him glory and honor, that as the song that we were listening to in the car this morning, that you would shine as stars in the sky in a, amongst the wicked and perverse generation of darkness. Instead of being that kind of thing of like, oh man, I get to this cool possibility here instead we're looking at it going yeah but how can i execute this in a legalistic manner that leaves me feeling self-justified that i can put my head on a pillow at night and go oh look at the good christian that i am look at the things that i've done look at how i handled the situation pat me on the back look i prayed for patience and i had a tribulation look at me so that's that's us that's our mindset all too often the thing we have to fight against. Even his disciples were struggling with it. His disciples in verse 10 through 12 say, if that's the case with a man with his wife, it's not good to marry. And you take that offhand and you go, what a comical kind of answer from them. You know, you can almost see like a group of guys sitting around going, well, if that's the case, it'd be better not to marry. <laughs> you know, that I could keep my man cave and you know, drink beer and watch football and have no responsibility, you know, it'd just be better to be a bachelor and live the life up. You can kind of get this kind of goofy, jovial, ignorant remark. But it, it's more so, it's speaking to their, the, the little bits of their heart that are struggling with that as well. All of these struggles come back to an issue of submission. All of these struggles come back to an issue of submission. Just like we were talking about, you have to humble yourself to enter into the kingdom of God. If you don't humble yourself, you cannot enter. The root action of humbleness, humility, is submission. It's a verb. Humble yourselves is a verb. It is not a philosophical mind state. It's a verb. It's an action. It is Get down on your knees, prostrate yourself, humble yourself before the eyes of God, submit yourself to the overpowerful will of God. Get on the right level. You're here, he's there, listen to him, what he says you do. That's the kind of mindset that we're getting here. So even with here, these guys that are kind of joking back like, oh, will it just be better not to marry? God's going... No, it would be better if you would get over yourself and submit yourselves to my will and do what I have commanded you to do and then look at the beautiful thing you're going to be a part of. They're saying, oh, well, I can't handle that. You know, it's just too much. He's like, get over yourself, dude. Humble yourself. Why do you think you deserve that, that quote-unquote freedom that you have when you're not married, you're not tied down, you don't have a ball and chain? Why do you th what are you even talking about? I've showed you something that is greater more beautiful. It's a mysterious union that you will get nowhere else. And you're looking at it going, oh, it'd just be better if we didn't marry. Then I wouldn't have to have the hassle of it. Then I wouldn't have to deal with it. And like you're trading this beautiful thing that I've given that was given before sin even entered into the world, before anything fell apart. This union is something that is beyond this world. 
It's like, and you're taking it and trivializing it to the point that either you can just cut it off with a little writ of divorcement from Moses or looking at it like, oh, well, I just can't handle that. It's too much. No, get over yourself. You can handle it when you get over yourself. You can enter the kingdom when you get over yourself. You can forgive someone when you get over yourself. That's what he gets back to, and that's what he's going at him. And that's why, then he uses this whole thing about eunuchs real quickly that, you know, you go through it, you're like, wow, that's just such a weird thing. But he said to them, all men cannot receive this saying, save they to whom it is given. For there are some eunuchs which were born from their mother's womb, and there are some eunuchs which were made eunuchs of men, and there be some eunuchs which have made themselves eunuchs for the kingdom of heaven's sake. He that is able to receive it, let him receive it. That was not like, oh, it's okay, it's not for everyone. Marriage isn't for everyone. That's not what Jesus said, okay? That's not what he was saying at all. That's not what he was implying. He wasn't going out here going, that's not, that's not for everybody. Only certain people can get it. I mean, look at the eunuch's case. They can't get married, can they? I mean, that's not what he's doing. He's not giving that. There are some people who, as Paul would say, they are called to non-marriage, okay? There's a gifting for that. Not everybody is supposed to get married, and there's plenty of people that you look at and said, you probably shouldn't have gotten married, you know. You're too immature. And apparently you can't get over that. And you can't get your, I don't know what's wrong, but maybe you shouldn't have gotten married. But that's not what he's talking about here. He is using this physical representation, the natural example of the eunuch being unable to obtain these things because obviously they're eunuchs, Okay. So they can't really get married and enter into this spiritual union kind of thing because you're a eunuch. So that has kind of been removed in your case, all right? But the point that he was making is a case, as I called it, which you're all going to love this and everybody's going to wake up now. But the case that I think he is making is for a spiritual castration. A spiritual castration. These people here who he's talking about, he's saying only those to whom it was given can receive it. Those who have hardened their hearts or those who have a hard heart to begin with cannot receive this saying. They cannot receive any of the sayings of the kingdom of heaven. They can't receive the forgiveness saying because they're so absorbed with themselves and they've cut themselves off from any kind of anything to be able to receive this to the point that they would say, you know what, you're right. I need to humble myself. You know what? You're right. I need to forgive my brother. You know what? You're right? No, they're like the Pharisees. They're the one over here going, no, you're wrong. And I need a legal reason. And let me show you how perfect I am. And let me show you why it's this woman's fault. Let me show you why all these things. And Jesus is going, look, there's something. They're not going to receive it. These Pharisees are a great example to why they're not receiving it. There's a spiritual castration that's going on here. You're cut off from it. You're cut off from that part that God has given you that would even be allowing you to move in the direction of humility. That would even be allowing you to humble yourselves and get on your knees and realize that you need to submit to the will of God. So it's this back and forth between the views that Jesus and Christ was teaching and then the Jews that the, and then the, the views that the Pharisees are teaching here. Pharisees views of teaching on Christ and what Christ said. Hey, look, as long as you got it legal, man, as long as you can justify yourself in it, it's good. And Jesus saying, no, 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 there is a submission to God's will. And that means that sometimes it's going to be into situations that you didn't anticipate. It's going to be in ways that you can't seem to get your mind wrapped around. But you understand that you're submitting to God's will on the matter it's god's way i don't know how it's going to work out it's god's way though that's who i'm in submission to i'm not trying to figure it out on myself i'm not trying to work this scripture to make it work better for me so that i feel better about myself or so i can justify myself no god said this is how it is and i have to get in with that submissive posture so you see this back and forth between here the pharisees saw the union as just a strictly legal thing it's a piece of paper. goes no deeper, no more bond than that, no more contract than for the sale of a donkey. Okay, That's about as deep as it gets. God's view on the matter was it is a man and a woman, and they are joined in this way, not just anatomically, but much more importantly, spiritually. And astoundingly, these were the religious leaders. This was not Roman paganism. This was orthodox ultra-Orthodox Judaism. 
These were the religious leaders of that day. And sadly, there are a lot of religious leaders in our day who have the same kind of views. So how do we fall in these pitfalls of the Pharisees and do we twist scriptures and do we change God's intended meaning to better suit our lives? Of course, I think there's plenty of examples. The most kind of stark one out there that everybody probably would jump on board with because I don't think any of us are on board with it. And here is, you know, you got the health, wealth and prosperity doctrine that Jesus called us kings and Kings are royalty, which means they're rich, which means God wants you to be rich. And if you're health, wealth, and prosperity, then you should be rich too. Well, that's part of it. You should get a Bentley and a Cadillac and a mansion and all that stuff. Because God said you're a king, man. So name it, claim it. You should have that kind of wealth too. Ignoring the fact that Jesus didn't have any of that wealth when he was here. Mark chapter 11, therefore I say unto you, whatsoever things you desire when you pray, believe that you will receive them and you shall have them. This falls under that kind of faith healing community thing that taken out of context would you assume off of this that your healing blessings, answered prayers are predicated on the amount of faith and belief you have. If they're predicated on the amount of faith and belief you have, which is very crushing to someone when they don't get an answered prayer that they were anticipating. Well, where's my faith? Where's my belief? Do I really believe? Am I a non-believer? Do I not have faith? Am I going to hell? Jeremiah 29, For I know the thoughts that I think towards you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Taking these verses out of context, you have the idea, kind of like health, wealth, and prosperity gospel, that would give you the idea that I will encounter no hardships in life, no traumas during my life. God has, I, has a plan for me. My plan, His thoughts are of peace and not of evil. So I got it. I got a life of peace. And obviously, if there's trauma or hardships in them, then number one, either God's plans are really messed up. Number two, maybe God doesn't have any plans for me. Maybe I'm not one of his children. And of course, that falls in direct contrast and contradiction to what Jesus said. In this world, you're going to have tribulations. Here's my plans for you. You're going to have tribulations. So chew on that and figure that out, okay? And lastly, one of my favorites is the one that I've heard my entire life, which is from Proverbs 23, remove not the old landmark. Which, taken completely out of context, is this is why traditions exist in the church and why practices don't change because you're not supposed to remove the old landmarks, which is, again, completely not accurate with what the context of that verse is even talking about. The worst case scenarios, though, are the ones and the reasons why, in closing, we have even been doing this for the last two years. Love your neighbors. But I'm sure that only means those neighbors that are here legally. That's a twisting of the scripture. Quoted from by a church person, okay, um, on national news, unfortunately. Love your enemies. Well, but, you know, you've got to protect yourself and you've got to have rules and you've got to have boundaries and you've got to have separation and you've got to have exclusions. I know God said we were supposed to even, like, give them water and food and stuff, but... I tell you what, the most loving thing we can do from our enemy is to carpet bomb their families. How about that? That sounds like a better idea. And lastly, the one that probably is the most, well, I could say it's the most egregious, but I guess it's the most palpably egregious in our time, our area, our everything, are things like from Colossians 3 and 10, where Paul would write to the church and say, I, you have put on the new man, which is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him, where there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcision nor uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, bond nor free, but Christ is all and in all. Basically mean there are no racial boundaries. There are no geopolitical boundaries. There is nothing like that that separates us in Christ. We are all one in Christ. All equal in Christ. There is no hierarchy in Christ. It's not like, yeah, but the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant ones, they have a higher level than everybody else because, you know, we are the Western culture and the Western church. And even though the church didn't start in the West, you know, somehow we put ourselves on a higher pedestal. But then the contrary to that is things like, yeah, but, you know, God cursed him and made him black and made him a servant for everybody. Taught in churches. Israel was commanded not to mix with the other cultures or get married with any of the other cultures. And that's why we're not supposed to mix with other cultures. And we're not supposed to get married to other races. And they're supposed to stay separate. We're supposed to stay homogenized with our races. 
Arabs are all descendants of Cain and Ishmael and, you know, this whole thing about the sword and stuff. And they'll always be fighting and they'll always be killing each other. There's nothing you can do with them. Those kind of things are the twisting of scriptures that lead to heresies in the church. God did not curse Ham to make the black race. Okay? And yes, there are Arabs that are descendants of Cain and Ishmael. And yes, there are some verses that do speak about war being in their nature. But you're also implying that there's no possibility for Christians or children of God amongst them. And if you go with the idea of, well, I mean, there's just nothing to do with them because they're always going to be at war, then you go right back to, well, how are you going to love them? How are you going to carry the gospel to them? Are children of God not supposed to hear the gospel? Is it not good for them? Do we not have a reason to preach to? I mean, we preach to all the people around here for the same reason, right? So we have to be careful that we don't let cultural warpings of the scriptures affect us. There's a lot of generations going from the 1900s, 1800s, up until like the 1950s and 60s and probably beyond then. And there's probably still some people today. In fact, I know there are because I've heard people say it. That would still use the completely unbiblical ham was cursed by God and made black and subservient to everyone to justify the treatment of African Americans for the last 250 years. I mean, we go even just today, I mean, just recently in a place that you wouldn't expect. It's in, in Birmingham, Alabama, you have schools where racial epitaphs and screamings and yellings and everything are still going on. So to pretend like that's some kind of thing that's been done away with back in the 1950s with the civil rights law is just ridiculous. The same hard, wicked, disobedient hearts that were pumping in the hearts of the Pharisees with their racial indignations against Samaritans and everybody else. The same wicked heart as in every single human being. That potential is still there. That, that, that wicked you know, mindset is still there. So what's important for us is we have to be the ones that go back and shine like the stars in the night, okay? And go, no, you see this beautiful scripture that God gave us that talks about how Christ is just in all, you know? All of his children, they're all equal no matter where they came from. That we have nothing dividing us anymore. We don't look along racial lines and say, oh yeah, but you are this and I am this and that way. We can't get, no, that's not even the case. In fact, in any case, Jesus would say, even if you're enemies, you're to love them. Even if your enemies, you're to give them food, you're to give them water, you're to take care of them. So I just really find nothing. That's, that's what we have been going on for two years. I find nothing in the scriptures that would give anybody the reason to think that somehow we would be bigoted, racist, hateful, vengeful people. But for some reason, that is the perception of us. Some reasons, it's just blatantly wrong. Some reasons is because of people have gotten on TV professing to be Christians saying exactly these things that we just talked about. So that's why we're talking about this. We have to be careful that we don't fall into the camps of the Pharisees and twist scriptures to suit our own, whatever it is, social, political, or personal gains. But that rather we realign ourselves with exactly what Jesus taught on the subject. So I know I've been long this afternoon, so I'm sorry about that. But um, we will continue to press forward as we go through chapter 19.